On this week's Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about challenger brands and a challenger brand mentality. I'll be joined by Eric Fulweiler and DuBose Cole from marketing agency Rival. We're going to talk about lots of the great research they've done in this space, and we're going to get into some tips and advice for what brands need to do as we enter a difficult time of economic, market, and financial uncertainty. That's all ahead on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. So welcome. Um, and as I mentioned on this week's Inside Marketing, we will talk about uh, challenger brands. So I'm delighted to be joined by Eric Fulweiler and DeBose Cole. So welcome, guys. Thanks for joining me today. Happy Thanks to be here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a bit sad we couldn't do this in person when we were over in Dublin a few weeks ago, but I know schedules didn't align. Oh, yeah. So happy no. to do it remotely with you now. Yeah, no. Well, next time when you're over, let me know you're in town and we can definitely, def- definitely do it. Um, and as I offer everybody... We can do some beers on, and the Irish Times will pick up the tab. How's things anyway? How's business for you guys? How's life? How's business? Are you keeping busy? Yeah, things are good. We're very busy. Um, we're about six months in with Rival, and obviously we'll get into that whole story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, t- it's a lot of work starting a business from scratch. So there's a lot that's gone into it. But I really feel like we're starting to get a bit of traction now. There's some great work um, that the team has done over the last six months, starting to get the brand out there a little bit more. Right. So I'm feeling pretty good about things. And um, I think DuBose is feeling pretty great about things because there's all that. And he's in Spain. Oh, jealous. DuBose, what has you in Spain? Is is it work or holiday? Uh, Just working from different places. So uh, we decided to to head down to Spain for a bit. So if there's a bit of an echo, I'm hiding from the sun in the the lowest level of an Airbnb. I can empathize with that being of of Irish. I'm an Irish man, so the sun doesn't suit us Irish people. So anyway, well, thanks for joining me. We'll crack on. So, um, and you mentioned you're six months into your, your starting up a new agency. So we'll get into a bit more detail on the agency later on, but... The difficult question first, I'm going to put you on the spot. Give me the elevator pitch. What is Rival about? What differentiates you from other agencies? And what is that um, 30-second pitch, Eric? Yep. So the 30-second pitch is Rival is a boutique growth consultancy that works with businesses that wants to disrupt their categories. So we're actually a bit more of a management consultancy than we are an advertising agency. I mean, I think it's a bit of a blurred line Mm. in certain places. But what we're really trying to do is focus on strategy and capability building within organizations all around this idea of challenger brands. And actually for us, we're trying to push that a little bit further because if you think about it, challenger is more a statement of intent than accomplishment. And also it's such an overused term in our industry these days. It's so fascinating to watch, especially on the agency side. And apologies, maybe this offends some of the people listening, but you know, there's some very traditional agencies that are calling themselves challengers as well. So we're trying to actually point out that challenger is what you say you're trying to do, mm. but actually what is it that uh, makes challengers successful? And that's what we're trying to understand over the lifetime arrival, the experience that we have, the work that we do with clients, and a lot of the research that we've done recently, which, of course, we're going to talk about today. So that was a little bit more than 30 seconds. Yes, that's kind you, of cheated. The, um, you cheated. You overview. In typical agency <laughs> agency fashion, you went, you ran over already, and we're only two minutes in. But no, that's cool. It sounds, I get it, because I know a bit about you, and I looked on your site. Now, one of the things that, um, I well, there's lots of things I liked about your site, and I love the ambition as you talk about the um, rival, but you, you have a, a wealth of really brilliant research and, and publications. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about that, some of those research initiatives that you've done. And you recently put out a few pieces of research in collaboration with Imperial College. So, And it's, it's pretty much focused on what makes a successful challenger brand. And I agree, challenger brands are, you know, everyone, a lot of people talk about them and they don't really understand it. So as a concept, it's not new, but I think what you guys are doing in, in this space is really interesting. So first of all, um, can you give me just talk to me about the Spark project and um, what it is, why you started it, um, that kind of thing? Yeah. So Spark is basically our research initiative. So we started this at the very beginning when we started Rival. We knew that this is something that we wanted to do, um, and um, you know, started having some conversations with a few different universities and academic institutions to potentially collaborate, and have landed on this partnership with um, the marketing faculty in Imperial College, which is great. But it's really our push to try to analyze, understand, and share what are the dynamics and decisions that certain challenger brands and marketing teams make 
mm-hmm. that allow them to be successful at disrupting their category. Um, and so what we're going to do is kind of, it's going to be an always on type of thing where we're consistently releasing these types of reports. Some of them are going to be bigger, like the one that we dropped a couple of weeks ago. And some of them might be a little bit smaller or more reactive to stuff mm-hmm. that we see going on in the world. But it's really looking at from a quantitative, qualitative And then also doing some interviews with challenger CMOs or entrepreneurs, businesses that are actually disrupting their category um, to really understand what they're doing differently. And so the first three reports um, that we release that we're going to be talking about today. So the first is focused on what we're calling uh, pufferfish challengers. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is that certain challenger brands through the way they activate and go to market are able to puff themselves up to appear bigger than they are. And we find that really fascinating and have some really interesting findings to share on that front. Uh, The second is around, we're calling it the great COVID crunch. So as different markets and also different, um, you know, demographics come through what's been going on over the last couple of years with COVID, how are expectations shifting and how should brands think about meeting those expectations. And then the last one is around community building, Mm -hmm. which is something that has been tried and true for challenger brands for a long time. But we think it's really interesting with everything going on in the Web3 space, how a lot of those brands and businesses have community at the core. Mm. Um, so we'll go into it in more detail, but that's that's what we're going to cover yeah, at a high level. And they're, they're great. We, we'll tell people where they can find them and they're all there. People can immerse themselves in them and they're great. So um, Debo, I was going to talk to you for a second. So um, The Great COVID Crunch is one of the the publications that, that Eric just mentioned there. And you know, and, and at, at its core, it's kind of understanding how we go back to normality in a post-COVID world, as it were. Um, in the article, it mentions the fact that search searches have dropped by 75% for COVID-related terms. So and I know we feel it ourselves. It was like you couldn't escape the news report on COVID. It was everything then, um, you know, rightly so. Russia's taken over. It's all people talk about. It's, everyone's obsessed with with um, Johnny Depp's trial at the moment as well. So it's like COVID is gone, to be honest. It's like it's gone away. But um, is there a lot of concern still, the buzz around COVID? Um, do, do we have a, a long way to go in terms of people's attitudes and sentiments towards it? And is there a feel that um, we're going to be living with COVID forever? And and also, what I didn't know what this meant. What does the, ter- the term COVID crunch actually mean? What did you mean by that, DeBose? It's a great question. So one of the things we were curious about seeing is, uh, to your question, do people still worry about COVID? Uh, has it been displaced by other worries in the world? And and where does it currently sit? And one of the things we found looking at both the US and the UK, which we thought was an interesting uh, research split, given the difference in regulations, is that in both markets, there is still a, a lingering concern. Maybe it doesn't burn as bright as it did before due to the prominence of coverage, but uh, I don't think people believe it's gone away. And what we wanted to consider was then, well, when do people think it's going to end? Is there an expectation that it's ending soon? Is there an expectation that it will it will end a further away? Or is there an expectation it will never end? And what we actually saw was uh, those lingering concerns are still present. And an expectation is that for most of the population, the end of COVID is more than six months away or it will be with us forever. Right. And I think those two factors feed into what we call the COVID crunch, which is I think there was an expectation during COVID and consumer behavior and perception that there would be a firing gun that goes, okay, COVID's over, go build your life afterwards. But actually the reality is if it's going to be with us for a long time, if not forever, as something that's an endemic worry, then we're already building our post-COVID lives right now because we're already heading back to work while we're still concerned about it. We're already considering what we want our daily routine to be outside of the home. And what we see is a crunch between the behaviors that we had during COVID and the lives we want to lead after COVID. So a lot of our research dives into how these two things crunch together. And it's creating something we call COVID contradictions, uh, tensions where uh, you know, concerns for wanting to be, say, healthier, safer, more secure, but also freer or traveling more, uh, start to all come to head at the same time. And one of the things we feel is is quite a big opportunity for brands is whenever you see that dissonance, whenever you see those contradictions, there's naturally a role for products and brands to come in there and resolve those. When consumers can't resolve a contradiction themselves, that's when there's an opportunity to provide additional value. And, and that's what we see coming out of this crunch. 
Yeah, and, and you talk about the tensions there, and again, which which I which I really like about all the reports that you've done is that they're um, they're easy reads. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. They're 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 really well done, but they're they're easily understood. Um, they're, you're not kind of drowning in jargon, and and they're and they're practical. So I do like that as well. So there's kind of here's what's going on. Here's some interesting things to think about, and if you're a brand and you know, those tensions that exist. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of the tensions. So one of the tensions that, that you that you talk about in it is this tension of freedom versus security. And, and I get what that means, but can you just unpack that a little bit? And also the relevance for a brand um, in, in, that, in, in that kind of tension, uh, what, what do brands need to think about? And is it about them picking their place on, on opposite sides of that kind of tension? Are they offering freedom as an escape or security as a kind of shelter from what people are feeling? So how, how does that all work? It's a great question. So the way we are thinking about freedom versus security is how has COVID shifted the needs for either greater security in one's life, be that financial or social, or even uh, from a from a health perspective, or the freedom to go explore more, travel more, live in different ways. One of the things we saw a lot of during the pandemic was the, the narrative of the great resignation, that idea that we've all quit our jobs and started baking bread or, or opening kind of boutique art galleries places. And I, and I think, you know, it's a convention that you started to see more and more in advertising. One of the things that struck us investigating this was actually there was a, a truck ad last year in the United States where the main selling point was it's a Wi-Fi hotspot. So you could go work anywhere. So it's kind of people hop in, drive their truck off to a lake, do a few hours of working and then go fishing. It's kind of the new oh, great right. American dream. And I think what was interesting is you start to see that shift of how brands hear of freedom. What's the aspiration we're working to? But I think once we started to get in the data, what we found is for every person that say quit their job, for every person that was thinking about going to do something different, there's another person who just wants security just wants to keep the job they have, just wants to minimize financial worry. And I think what was interesting is what started as a contradiction we thought would be between two different people within the research started to, to, to become clear. It's actually a contradiction that, that one person can experience at different times. Right. Because I think the cultural narrative about people leaving their jobs has sparked an aspiration to, to want to travel more, to want to do something different. And you know, what was intriguing on the, the resignation point is actually we, we saw in the data as many people renegotiated their working conditions in the UK as left a job. So actually what you start to get are different levels of freedom, different levels of articulation. But what we also see is those same people want to say that they need to be more financially secure. There's a large majority of the population, even those that haven't been financially affected by COVID, uh, in both the U.S. and the U.K. that say that in the next year they want to save more money. They mm. want to become more financially secure. So what we see is two forces that are at loggerheads, a cultural conversation and a need to go out and experience the world more, travel more, try different things. But at the same point, trying to do that in a way that doesn't compromise a need for financial security and safety. Mm. And we feel that's a really powerful tension across categories that gives roles for financial institutions. When you talk about budgeting and saving, trying to minimize the, the damage to financial security while experiencing greater freedom, it gives opportunities to travel companies. When you start to mm. think about the idea of how do you allow people to go back to traveling in a way that feels safe, that still gives that freedom. And I think, you know, for any lifestyle brand, it's a tension. that's going to be interesting to figure out where you sit. I think for all of these, we don't see it as a, a spectrum where you have to choose a side. Right. It's more where do you want to allay some of the tension? Okay. Where do you want to allow people to to play on one side of the spectrum without having to experience the cost of the other? And that's where I think there's some really, really interesting roles for challengers to start to establish themselves. Yeah, no, it's a great point in terms of um we we as individuals go to different kind of points on that on that continuum at different and with and different needs and within different categories like in, in some categories we, we you know freedom is what we want and in others it's security so one of the other tensions that that the report talked about was the tension of home versus world um, and it's looking at like we know certain things home subscription things they they really took off during the pandemic because and they were going that way anyway but the pandemic really fueled a lot of home subscription businesses and and gave an opportunity to, to new business and home subscription services. But like from your research, do you think that was, it was probably going to grow slowly anyway, but has it spiked um, unusually and unsustainably high? Are we going to see a drop off in these things? Is there's this need as people say, well, I know I have home gym equipment, but 
I actually like going out into the world. I like going to the gym because the gym is better. What's your view on that? And did your research point to any trends that may happen in the next couple of year or two on that? Home versus the world has been a really interesting one for us because I, I think what it underscores is that COVID didn't create a lot of permanent behaviors as much as accelerate a lot of those behaviors. So when we started looking at the things that were really winners from this home focus we had during lockdown, obviously you get things like grocery delivery, you get things like DIY, where our focus has shifted. And actually when we had to become more insular, you started to see market opportunities arise. And I think one of the things we did want to understand is when those go away, when the tide recedes, does that just dry up completely for the challenges they caught those headwinds? And what we, we've seen from the research in general is that most people who say that they started ordering groceries during the pandemic online are going to carry on doing it. Uh, for most people who said they watched more streaming during the pandemic, it says they'll carry on doing so. So I think there's an interesting narrative here, which isn't that we're going to go back to where we were before. Uh, I think, you know, given that we've actually been so far from what would have been normal pre-pandemic, that path is gone. We, we've kind of lost a way to get back there. Instead, and this is what we look at a lot with the COVID crunch, it's about creating a new daily routine, a new reality, which may borrow from some of the things we loved before, but also some of the things during. And that's where we think there is a market opportunity for a lot of these brands, especially the ones that, that benefited from a home focus. Mm. I think when you think of grocery delivery, when you think of rapid delivery, I think if people see those as convenient, what they're going to do now is fuel the ability to be able to do more in and out of the home because you freed up the need to, to go to the shop as much. Mm. When we think of home workout, I think it's an interesting one in that it's not that it becomes a question of do I completely work out at home or do I completely work out at the gym? Mm. Instead, it becomes a portfolio of options. Yeah, one of the things that is quite intriguing looking at the home workout market right now is is repositioning themselves as novel exercise instead of just the home option. Because if you're getting something that you couldn't get at the gym, then who's to say you don't have a portfolio of fitness opportunities and options? And mm -hmm. I think that's really the spirit for every brand in this home versus the world idea. It's not going to be a zero-sum game, but you need to figure out what are the bits you want to kind of partition off. And then what's the role you're going to play to either help people enjoy more of both, to maximize the enjoyment of their time at home, or to help them experience new bits of the world. Right. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Um, Eric, I, I'm gonna because you mentioned the the pufferfish and um, the rise of the pufferfish uh, challenger brand, and and as you as you put it there on the intro, you kind of thought it's it's about how brands can kind of puff themselves up a little bit to appear to be bigger than they actually are, um, or than in terms of their market share. So, um. And in that, like, it's a, we could do we could do a full hour talking about that. To be honest with you, because it's so interesting, some of the things there's, there's a lot in it, so we won't do it justice now. But one of the things that one of the advantages that advertising has per se is the fact that it, it's kind of signaling. So, um, you know, Rory Sutherland talks about this. He talks about the fact that there's a reason why if a brand puts an ad on TV, it kind of enters into a contract with the people that says. And and the way we think about it is. Well, the brands are going to make this claim on TV, spending this money, making that ad, which is high production values, putting it book in space, putting it on so millions of people can see it. They're not going to do that if what they're saying is not true because the reputational damage that would come with that in duping everybody into buying it once and it being a disaster, they'd be exposed. So it, it kind of works. And that's one of the benefits of advertising. Um, and I think as well, there's a people are quite savvy. We know the, the opportunity cost or the entry cost to a, a, a pretty shitty looking social post is quite low. Anybody can do one. So, you know, there's no exposure and we feel we're being micro-targeted to and we feel less trusting of those things. So anyway, um, you've done a lot of, you, you, you've unpacked quite a, quite a lot of that. But in that research, you talk about these new toolkits because obviously scale, the, the entry cost of advertising by, you know, it, it meant by design meant that you had to have big budgets. But you say the rules of engagement have kind of changed a little bit now. There's new media toolkits for puffer brands. So, how do they compete? How, how does in that article? How do how do brands puff themselves up a little bit in terms of their cloud and advertising? And how do they compete with the big budget mainstream advertisers? Eric, how do they do that? So it's really interesting. And actually, I want to tell the story of how we decided to look at this trend. So we do these um, roundtable dinners where we bring together kind of eight to ten, usually CMOS from bigger brands, but also entrepreneurs from startups and challengers. And it's fascinating bringing those two worlds together and hearing different perspectives and approaches. And actually, that's why we were over in Dublin a few weeks ago as we hosted one um, in Dublin. 
And so the idea came from one that we did towards the end of last year where we had um, a guy who for a long time was a very senior executive in the personal care division of Unilever and sitting next to, literally next to, actually an Irish guy who has started a men's um, direct-to-consumer kind of healthcare and supplement business here in the UK called Sons. And the guy, the ex-Unilever guy, was kind of talking about this campaign that he launched in China from one of their products and like $50 million budget, or I don't know what it was, but it was huge. Mm. And then uh, Will from Sons was like, well, we just went on TV with 10 grand right. here in the UK. And it was just so fascinating just seeing the kind of contrast between how these big incumbent brands think about going to market and how these challengers think about going to market. And so we started pulling on that thread, talked to Will, talked to a couple of other, a couple of these other kind of challenger businesses, um, and landed on this idea of the Puffer Fist Challenger, this concept of the Puffer Fist Challenger. And so what we think is really interesting is call it the attention arbitrage that certain channels offer, mm. meaning $1 spent on certain channels is not always equal to $1 spent on other channels. You can actually create a lot more return, whether it's market share or even just mind share, with how you look at your investment by channel and also how you look at investing by channel. And I think particularly when it comes to the you know, traditional above-the-line channels that historically have been the domain of the big incumbent brands, you know, technology has lowered the barrier to entry where you can go on TV for 10K and also measurement and attribution, for particularly for a business like Suns that's, you know, direct to consumer online. They can actually track how many people have gone to the website, how many people have purchased from the TV ad that they ran. So we think that's really interesting. The other example I'll give, actually another Irish brand um, called Riley that's a feminine hygiene challenger, direct to consumer. Uh, and so the woman who's the founder CEO there was telling us about an activation that she did in London where they bought a very cheap billboard in East London somewhere, you know, like a few hundred pounds or something like that, mm. but actually took a lot of photos of it and put it up on social. And it appeared, you know, that they had this big campaign right. in London. And so the impact of it was much bigger than the investment. And so I think, you know, we look a lot and talk a lot about this idea of how constraints drive creativity yeah, and through creativity, either in media execution or actually the creative concepts, you can create an impact that's bigger than your investment and puff your brand up to appear bigger than mm -hmm. it actually is. Yeah. It's fascinating for me because, um, you know, the, 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 the promise of, of new routes to market and DTC brands, um, and I guess no disrespect to Google, they're fine people and fine salespeople, but like the, the, the line is, you know, harvest all the existing demand, harvest, 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 but do all you can. But it's interesting that a lot of DTC brands are waking up to realize that, you know what, um, really micro-targeting and and going so niche after a certain cohort is, is really going to limit incrementality. And there's a certain serendipity to advertising to the masses. Like I, I buy stuff, which is which I'm clearly not meant to be buying. It's not targeted at me. And I'm just a weird kind of um, impulse buyer about certain things. But... It, like in Google's world, they'd say, um, you know, dominate, harvest all the demand, spend as much as you can on search when people are like searching for your brand. But then your research or your kind of tip for brands is to to really um, experiment with new channels before, you know, and try different things. Like you said, there's so the, the thoughts of buying one poster or doing 10 grand on TV. It it completely goes against the logic of 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 what we as planners would say. We say, don't spread your budget too thin. Don't do loads of different things. Concentrate on one thing. Do that. And when you when you've done that properly, and you've not quite exhausted your budget in a channel. Then look to do a secondary medium. And this kind of completely contradicts that because this idea that is your view for challenger brands that try different things. It's a complete opposite. Don't limit your focus to just say social or or search. Um, try lots of different things. Is, is that kind of what you're saying to experiment with different channels? Is that what you think challenger brands should do? So one of the things that we've seen consistently in the conversations that we've had with challenger CMOs or entrepreneurs that are building challenger brands is their commitment to experimentation Mm -hmm. which sounds so obvious, but actually, if you think about it, you know, they're more willing to take risk. They're more willing to try new things before other people are are willing to do it. So I think of, you know, it's maybe less the research, although I'd love to hear DuBose's kind of build on this, 
but it's more, you know, these dinners, the, you know, we have our podcast where we interview both challenger and incumbent CMOs. And again, it's all about kind of bringing those two worlds together to see where the differences are, to try to help identify what is it that builds these successful challenger brands. Um, and pretty consistently, you know, from these challenger CMOs and entrepreneurs, they almost all have some type of framework where they commit to investing a certain amount of their time or a certain amount of their budget in experimental ways. So I think of um, So Young Kang, who's the chief marketing officer of EOS, a beauty kind of uh, product company over in the US mostly. Um, and I talked to her and she said, I forget exactly how much it was, but there's a set amount every month that her team has to spend right. on things that haven't been done before and they're not sure if it's going to work. Mm. And that led to a lot of the success that they had with a TikTok influencer activation, mm. for example. And I think that in bigger incumbent businesses, you're just kind of you know, less willing and less able to take those types of risks. So that commitment and usually that type of framework of we're going to make sure we do this consistently, that's something that we see in a lot of these challenger brands. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I get that. It makes sense actually trying new things as long as you can measure them. I think I, I think some of the frustrations I have is that, um, and it's not any particular client, but I've heard across a, different, a lot of different clients going, want to try new stuff, want to test new things. But then you go off and you find these things and the client will say, how do I know it's going to work? And I go, well, we don't know it's going to work because if we try it, we'll know whether it works or not once we try it. But like, so you have to have, if you're going to try things, you have to accept that some things will work and some things won't. So you have to have, I guess that's, um, challenger brands have that mindset and kind of established brands are more risk averse, I guess. So it's kind of probably baked into the, into the, the premise of a challenger brand. Anyway, you also talked about in the article about it's not just media and, and you know, TV, entry costs for TV. You can be on TV for 10 grand in the UK now, but you talked about new distribution channels that are open to challenger brands today and, and, and ones that didn't exist in categories um, pre-pandemic. But how does that benefit challenger brands? Because if there's new distribution channels, they benefit everybody. So any brand or any company can take advantage of them. So how, why is it an opportunity for challenger brands or is it just that challenger brands are more agile, they can do things quicker, they have, you know, test and learn and fail and the the entry or opportunity cost of doing something is far lower for them that just the bigger brands are more, you know, they're slower to move. Is is that why it's an opportunity? Honestly, I mean, we could talk about it for an hour, but that's the bottom line. Like that really is the punchline at the end of the day is they're able to get there faster because mm. they're smaller, they're more willing to take risk. Um, you know, they're trying to find those arbitrage opportunities and not just kind of sit back and continue to do what's already done. Speed, you know, it's not necessarily a marketing thing, but speed is one of the biggest advantages that challengers have over incumbent businesses, just mm -hmm. how quickly they get, to, they get to market. And that gives them not only the kind of classic first mover advantage of they're on TikTok two years before their big competitors are, but it also gives them more faster feedback on what's working and what's not. So they get smarter faster, as well as actually moving faster. Right, yeah, yeah, and you've mentioned TikTok now a, a couple of times, and and I know it it kind of really came into people's kind of consciousness a lot more during the pan during the pandemic, and I think it was just timing was right for that as a platform. It was something new. It was fun. It felt, even though you're experiencing it in isolation, it felt like there was a real a, a real community to it, and it had a lightness and an, an enjoyment factor to it that you don't. And what your your feed wasn't flooded with you know, stories about anti-vaxxing and all that kind of stuff. So at just moment in time, it worked. Um, and you've done a lot of your, some of your research actually talks about the effectiveness of TikTok. So um, it really took off in COVID, but how big a platform is it now? And not just in terms of users, um, in terms of its impact or its ability to influence purchase decisions, because you mentioned there EOS, I think you said that they tried things on TikTok. And I, and I think people were amazed that even though, for its size, it significantly delivered far greater um, disproportionate returns on any investment than than any of the, the social channels that have been around for, relatively speaking, a long time. How big is it? And how impactful is it? Yeah, I mean, it's massive. You know, people I'm sure have heard and can go look up the stats of how much time people spend there, how many monthly active users they have. I think I saw a headline this week where they just surpassed YouTube. I forget the metric. I wish I could remember. But... Um, it's it's a monster, and mm. I think people are are waking up to this now. But a year, two years ago, you know, there was a ton of opportunity there because mm. again, these big organizations move slowly when it comes to new platforms. But the thing that I think is interesting, you know, having been around the block on this a couple times, is like it's the same cycle, it's the same conversation. 
that happened with Facebook back in 2010 and then with Instagram in 2015 or whatever it was. It's kind of these things that start to come up and you see certain typically incumbent brands hesitate and say, well, Facebook is only for college kids. Instagram is only for hipsters to post photos of what they're eating for breakfast. True. All true. Both true. Brands. Both true, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you see the challenger brands recognizing the opportunity earlier and being able to get there faster to capture that attention arbitrage. And the other thing that they do really well is they understand how to activate on these channels in a way that's contextual to what the audience is looking to see. Right. So, for example, mm. TikTok, for those of us who have spent some time there, the culture of TikTok is so different than Instagram. You know, Instagram has reels, sure. And you could see how you could just post a video that you're going to take for Instagram or that you think of for Instagram and put it on TikTok. But the culture is entirely different. And so you look at the best in class brands on TikTok, and, you know, your, your Ryanair over there is one of the mm. ones that we always throw out. They are creating content specifically for TikTok. And I always throw back to the example of, again, history repeats itself. If you Google the first television ad, it is a, an ad from a watch company that's literally a radio spot being read over a static image. Right. People took the creative of the channel that they knew and put it on the new medium. Right. They did not, and it took them a while to figure out how to create creative that was contextual to the channel. And of course, now we think that's so silly because we all know what we think a TV ad should look like, but you still see so many of these brands that are not creating content that's contextual to the channel. And the context of the channel and the culture of the channel is a lot of what really matters and what drives results. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point. I, I see it all the time. I see clients taking a TV ad and then saying, yeah, yeah, no, that's why even social, uh, Facebook or TikTok. And I think that's a cool point. So it, would you advise um, brands who are thinking, like it's not enough to just say we're on TikTok. It, you can't, it's not the platform. The medium itself is not going to do a lot for the brand. It is, it is important to do it and to try things and to have, again, maybe it comes back to agility. You have to have um, a mindset where you're going to, I don't know, uh, some creative license and freedom in terms of not everything has to be produced by the creative agency to a certain degree. You, you've got to have some kind of creative freedom with, with, with your brand on certain channels. But is, is fit for platform and fit for purpose for platform as important as I think it is? Is that what you're saying there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, you know, DuBose and I have both and our third co-founder, we spent a long time in the agency world. A lot of it at VaynerMedia, which you know, I guess you could say was a bit of a, a challenger agency back in the day, uh, but also at bigger, more traditional creative agencies. And if you think about it, even the way that a lot of agencies are set up, it's built for the world of TV yeah, and how they yeah, operate, definitely. et cetera, right? Um, and so you really need to, I don't... I don't know. I was going to say break that model. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's more of an evolve, but you need to think about things differently. You know, really, uh, one of the things that we throw out there when we say, well, what does it mean to be a challenger? It's really about thinking things, thinking about things from scratch mm. for the world of today, right? Mm. That's why we named our podcast Scratch. That If you had to choose one thing, it's about forgetting or having some healthy ignorance about how things have been done in the past, only yeah. looking at today going forward, how would you do things differently? If you knew nothing about how an agency should be structured, yeah. and you walked in with a completely blank brain, and you saw everything going on with TikTok, everything going on with social, everything going on with digital, everything coming with Web3, would you really set up an agency the way that they are mostly mm. set up right now? Yeah, and the answer is no, and you so, wouldn't. Yeah. And you can't, you can't change everything immediately overnight, but that tells you where the gap is. And yeah. the gap between how you would do it differently today and how things are being done right now that's what we call the challenger growth gap. Yeah. And so it's about closing that as much and as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I think to, sorry, to, to that point, oh, sorry to jump in. I was just going to say, I think to what we're talking about here about rethinking how you would approach things for, for modern marketing, that doesn't inherently have to be risky. I think one of the things that, yeah. that we see is really you just have to treat everything like a hypothesis. I think a lot of the way we've traditionally approached marketing and media is big bets that we try to de-risk through doing things consistently, through craft, 
you know, in the age of having to make a TV ad, it's very scary, right? Like mm. 20 years ago, you would go, it's a shoot. It's going to take a few months to make this. The world may move on. We're going to put a large amount of money behind it. And that's really the equivalent of just going to a roulette table and putting all your money on red. Yeah. Whereas I think nowadays, you know, one of the things we're excited about with platforms like TikTok is you're instantly getting feedback from the community on what they're resonating with and what they're not. Mm. So if you can start to think of everything as a hypothesis to be tested, as something to be verified, then the data you're going to get back on platforms like TikTok is instantly going to tell you where to go next. Yeah. So at the end of the day, the, the consumer is trying to tell you what they want. We just have the platforms to now listen and we just need the methods to react fast enough to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, agree. And, and Debuzz, I'm going to stick with you now for a second because community is really, is really, really important. And again, it's one of these things that it's, it's a word that's thrown around quite a lot um, and it has a, a specific meaning and it means, you know, the spirit of community is really powerful for brands. But like, again, what we what I've just talked about there is the, to truly embrace community, you, there's a certain amount of letting go of your brand. But I've read a lot about NFTs and and right, I'm not going to pretend I know exactly what they are. My understanding is it's, it's kind of IP or, or digital ownership of, of digital assets. Um, and I, I don't know at the moment because again, we might be in a in a, an NFT bubble, I, the market is huge. There's a lot of trading going on, and I don't. I'm not sure whether all that trading is just hype and people have missed out on on Bitcoin. Although it's 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 kind of collapsed again. But um, you know, if you missed the boat, lots of people got rich on on crypto and, and maybe NFTs. Are people saying I'm not going to miss out on this one? So I don't know how artificial the market is at the moment. But the idea of what's behind um, NFTs and, and community and ownership is really, really important. What what are you, one of your, your papers talks about the rise of, of community owner. What's going on there and what can brands do to both? Let's stick with you on that. Uh, great question. So I think, you know, to think about what is an NFT, there's some amazing resources out there that can explain it much better than I. And, and, and I think as far as the market goes, it tends to be the thing that people get caught up on here. And obviously, I think with novelty around any new technology, there are obviously great opportunities to make or lose large sums of money. But I think one of the things that really excited us, looking at Web3, looking at cryptocurrency, and looking at NFTs, are the opportunity to accelerate something we were already seeing from brands. And that's a sense of openness and consumer ownership of a brand. I think you know, the traditional model of brand building and brand activation is really one of the storyteller. Uh, I found a platform to tell you about what I believe, and uh, you're going to sit here and consume my content. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the time, yeah, advancement there was really customizing that content so it was at least right as we were talking about for platform or for community. But I think more and more what we're starting to see is a shift towards distributed ownership of a brand. The idea that you can own a bit of the brands you interact with, not just buy products from them. You can mm. help to shape what uh, what they do. In some instances, you can even help fund the, the activities they'd like to put forward. And that's what's really exciting about NFTs as a, a technology is the idea that brands more and more are looking for ways to either, if you're established, allow consumers to own a bit of your IP, access to your world, events. You look at the types of things that say Anheuser-Busch was doing, uh, where they held events for NFT holders for some of their NFT lines. They've been allowing exclusive access, surprise and delight sessions for NFT owners, kind of getting people closer to the brand in the traditional sense, through to what we're seeing from a lot of challengers, where they're actually using NFTs to start raising money for some of the mm. activities they'd like to do. You're starting to see the rise of NFT-funded music festivals, uh, members clubs, restaurants, whereas normally these brands would go seek equity from uh, finance, yeah. from the market. Instead, they're able to go directly to the consumers that they're going to want to attend these things and raise money from them early by almost parceling off a bit of a sense of ownership and community way earlier than when they would normally create it. And we think that's super exciting. I think it's it's in its infancy. You look at what's going on with DAOs, you look what's going on with the maturation of NFTs. I think we're going to see a lot more of this idea of consumers coming in early as investors in the products they want to see in the world and the events they want to see in the world and almost funding those things into creation. Um, that kind of Kickstarter 2.0, if you will. And I think NFTs there really serve as a way to make it more frictionless, more seamless, and and allow the money to flow faster. Yeah. So, and again, is this just 
history repeating itself again, established brands are know the way finance works um, and it's it's kind of stocks and shares are the way you, you give away community ownership of your company, but it's traded on a stock exchange. And the newer brands are more agile and they're kind of essentially doing away with the intermediary platforms that they are direct to consumer in a way because you're allowing consumers a part of ownership for, you know, for finance, for money, they can have some ownership digital of your brand, but it's done via NFTs and, and the bigger companies are still wedded to stock exchanges and shares and, and IPOs, whereas the, the newer companies and brands are, are, ju- are just more agile and they're thinking about the world differently. Is it the same model just kind of rethought? I think it's a great metaphor. I think what we find is established brands tend to have an arm's distance relationship with consumers. As you mentioned, exchanges are really that. And I think even those are being broken down when we look at Robinhood in the United States, when you look at the impact of Reddit investment groups, discords that are driving kind of different investment activity, you're already starting to break down the the, the intermediaries that are there. I think what the technologies we're looking at in Web3 are really doing is just accelerating that. They're giving that opportunity faster. Mm. But one of the things that's also here is the technology can only break down so much of this. Brands are gonna have to be built in a way to where they're comfortable being used, picked up, owned, shifted, transformed by consumers. The traditional brand building model was really one built on repetition and recall. What's the thing I want someone to know about me and how many times can I hammer it home in front of them until they know it? And I think what we're seeing nowadays, especially amongst challenger brands that are leaning into this sense of community, is they're creating a toolkit. They're Mm. creating a a Lego house, if you will, versus just one way of how people can perceive them. So they recognize that people will pick up this brand, personalize it in their own way, perceive it. The way we kind of talk about it is I think brand building was always hoped to be built in the the boardroom. But actually, brands are built and have always been to varying degrees in consumers' minds. So I think more and more, we're having to plan brands with an openness to that and Mm -hmm. with an understanding that there's going to be a variety in how they're perceived. Uh, And do you think, again, thinking about the model at the moment, um, Control, we all like control as human beings. We don't, we don't like not being in, in control. So when you think about, again, the, the model that, that we have and that exists at the moment, and, it, you know, you, you've seen all these things, brand guidelines, you know, brand books, you look books at the size of encyclopedias about what you can't do into sometimes outrageously ridiculous amount of detail of things you can and can't do. And that, that model is, and the agency will control everything and they'll tell you what you're allowed to do and don't use it in that background. And, and it's very, very um, restrictive and it's very tone deaf to the world in which you live where it's overly fussy. So do you, do you think, again, our challenger brands just less, you know, caught up and fussy about them being rigidly in control of how their brand is perceived? Because you can't control that, right? When we're talking about how your brand is perceived in someone's mind, you can't control that. Um, you can influence it. But is it, are, are traditional brands just way to kind of won't let go of their brands? And is that kind of a, a hamstring for them? Does it hamstring them in their ability in this new world where, you just got to, bit like your kids, you got to let them go out in the world and you got to let them get bumps and bruises and you can't mollycoddle them, you can't control them all day. Are the successful brands ones that are open to giving up some control? I think, you know, the one thing we'd say is I, I don't think we're brand anarchist. So we're, we're not kind of set against brand guidelines completely. And I, I think that should hopefully assuage some some fears of any marketing managers listening that it might keep them awake at night on uh, on anything goes. Because I think there is something to the idea of consistency, repetition, yeah. creating distinctive assets that stand out. Yeah, I do think to your point, though, openness is the name of the game on something like this especially amongst challenger brands that have been driven through community growth, they recognize that they need to go with the community on a journey. And that's going to involve being changed as much by your customers as you attempt to change their purchasing behavior. So I think the sense of openness is really key. That doesn't mean that uh, you know brand guidelines are dead. It doesn't mean that, that brand books in some form aren't useful as a, a consensus, especially internally, to help uh, people understand what you stand for, understand where you want to go. But what we believe is there needs to be a fluidity in mm. listening to consumers and what they want from brands and what they want from where you live in their world so that you can constantly become more valuable. Mm. And I think... The, the problem with a lot of traditional brands is 
there is a sense of, well, we've been doing this for so long. We almost know better than you do. Yeah. And I think at a certain point, we always have to remember that everything is an attempt to earn attention, earn time, earn behavior in a consumer's world. And at a certain point, like any relationship, you must always adapt to make sure that you're still worthy of that. Mm-hmm. So I just want to just build on that real quick, Dave, because actually the model that we use is something that we call the brand, a brand operating system as opposed to a brand guidelines or a brand book. So when we develop a brand or when we evolve or sharpen a brand proposition, the output of that is an operating system. Now, a lot of the components of it are what you would find in a brand book. But actually the concept is, as you can imagine, it's something that needs to iterate and evolve with the world around it. Right. And so I think that's a really key piece for us. And then the other thing that I think is really interesting is you know, the idea of consistency to what Dubois said, much like an operating system, there are certain things that are never going to change. Yeah. However, I would really put, like, I think this idea of brand managers or creative agencies, like, owning and being the final end-all be-all of, like, you know, we hold total control over what this needs to be. Mm. I kind of think that's wrong. And I think yeah. that they're missing out on a lot of opportunity. And so I think the shift needs to be, and if I could give something specific to people to hopefully think about and, and maybe do differently... You know, traditionally, if you were that guardian, you would think about having to say yes to everything that came through. Like, yes, that's right. I checked. Yes, that's okay. And I think the shift needs to be just make sure you're saying no to the things that aren't right. Okay. And that's a very different thing, right? Because then it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe that's not like 100%, but actually, let's try it. Let's Mm. see what happens. So there's a difference between the core components that absolutely need to be right and consistent. And the pieces around that that actually give you opportunity to test and learn and figure out how to evolve with the market around you. Mm. Yeah, great, great point. Um, Debose, a question for you. Like, given your expertise in this field and the research you've done and, and your finger on the pulse in terms of what's going on and you're plugged into culture and the zeitgeist, what advice um, or what should brands or, or, or marketers who are building brands do differently? or think about differently um, given everything you know in, in this this kind of, in, in the frame and the construct of, of being a challenger brand or, or having a challenger mentality, what's what should people do differently? We believe there are three aspects of any successful challenger brand that goes on to rival a category. And, and I, you know, these aren't wildly different from what we've seen in the world before. I think a lot of the time it's making sure they're executed well and they, they fit together. And, and those are really... We feel that first off, you have to be relevant to the consumer. The way we always tell brands to build is to start with what's the need you're solving? What is the value you're providing? And being incredibly sharp about it. I think yeah, we can all agree this is an important thing, but I think a lot of the time what we find is brand building becomes an exercise in how we'd like to see the world, not how the world actually is. Mm. So being brutally honest about the value you can provide and the need you solve is key. And I think what this can do is guide everything from how you orient an organization through to the value you provide, the communities you can support, and the places you show up. We, we also feel that understanding why you're distinct from the category has to be the thing that powers a, a challenger's success. I think right. a lot of the time, we tend to only think about the value we can provide as a product, our positioning. And that is always key. That's mm. going to be the, the third thing of any successful brand, an authentic value that comes truly from what you provide. Because I think we do live in an age where you know, style over substance at a certain point starts to filter away. Yeah. People are, are savvy. Yeah. But I think what you have to do is, is build a positioning that's not just authentic, but it's different. And I think different is really the hard bit here. Yeah. Because I think a lot of brand building, a lot of brand creation is very inward focused into the organization. And I think what we have to remember is brand is really the bridge out into the world. Yeah. Brand is the the path that we want to take into a consumer's life. And so it has to be rigorously built. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It is that there's, there's far too many meetings where it's so inwardly, we're, we're looking so inwardly in terms of what our because we're in control of that, what our product is and what we think um, 
people want and, and what and, and what we think they think about a category and and they don't see they don't give it half not even half they don't give it a fraction of the thought that that we any of the brands we work on give it so I think it's a great point um, Eric I'm going to let you go in a minute quick question you're you're new you're relatively young you're a challenger brand yourself at the moment you could even say who are you working with are you only are you predominantly working with um, challenger brands or i.e. new startups new entrants or are you are you working with some established or who do you want to work with do you work with established brands who just want to I don't like the word disruptive but because it over promises but but adopt a challenger mentality what's your what's your client yeah it's actually a, a mix it's prop it's probably pretty close to 50 50 in terms of startups and scale-ups that are you know I guess true challengers in the yeah. category they're bringing something new and different to market and then um, incumbent established businesses that are looking to do the same thing but from a point of already having scale um, and so it's a mix between the two and you know we're doing a, a good amount of work in FMCG category including a, a business over in Ireland doing a lot of work in financial services so we're building a, a challenger bank down in Africa right now which is really exciting good amount in B2B so it's really cross category right. and it really comes down to the um, intent and motivation of the business to try to disrupt the category that they're in and of course you know the culture fit between our team and the client as well are you are you in because you kind of said you're in a, in a kind of um, a hybrid between consultant and agency in that space. Are you are you in creative? Do you, what, where do you stop? Do you stop with um, consultation, or do you would you get involved in activation? Are you, do you have any creative capabilities? So most of the work we do is strategic development or capability building okay. within the marketing function. So looking at agency design, uh, training, uh, upskilling, oh. that type of thing. So we have the experience and you know, the capability to go into execution. But what we're much more interested in is kind of um, uh, helping people learn how to fish better rather than doing the fishing for okay. themselves, if you will. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. If anyone's listening and they want to find out a little bit more about you, the agency, you know, read up on some of the the great research that we talked about, where can they find you and where, and where can they kind of have a little noodle around on some of the, the work you've done? So we are rival.com. Uh, it's our homepage. You can find Dubose and I on LinkedIn, and um, you know maybe we can include the links to the research reports in the show notes mm -hmm. for the episode. Yeah, and it's all so it's all available free for anybody to go in and have a look at. There's no all the great research is there, widely available, open source. Correct. Cool. Well, I say I've checked out a lot of it, um, and I yeah, it's great. It's it's great because as I said, the the research in there, there's, there's there's a lot of it. It's really well done, and it, it's it's kind of really useful. So you can it gets you thinking, but it also gives you some kind of things to think about and points your brain in the direction. So. Um, that's it that's all she wrote folks we're out of time so I want to say big thanks to, to Eric and DuBose for joining me today thank you so much guys thanks for having us no no thank problem you. no problem and as always thanks to our partners in Irish Times Media Solutions um, for their continued support and enthusiasm and as always thanks to Andrea and Sound and Kira in Marketing if you like this episode why not listen back to some of our other great episodes you'll find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice so until next time get back in the office go check out We Are Rival check out their research get in the office meet your colleagues go for a pint catch up with people and stay safe until next time thanks for listening Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.